Well, good morning, Uniontown. Wow, I can hear you with your masks on. That's good. Uh, my name's Jeff Benda. I'm new, the, the new equipping pastor here, and we're just so thrilled to be here. My wife, Donna, is sitting up there on the front row, and uh, we just moved here two weeks ago today, and we're so excited to be here. You know, we've uh, loved getting to know the staff team, the elder team, and the thing that really sold us is when Frank and Mark promised us it would never get below 50 degrees up here. Because uh, my wife is from southern Louisiana, and we just moved here from Mississippi. But uh, anyway, no, we're really looking forward to uh, enjoying the, the change of seasons, and especially looking forward to uh, getting to know you guys over time. You know, as I was thinking of our time together this morning, I couldn't help but think of a, a mailman. As a young boy, I grew up south of Chicago, about 35 miles in a suburb in a neighborhood where the houses were close together. And back in those days, the mailboxes were right by the front door of every house. And as a young boy, I just can't get out of my mind the mailman coming down the street. They used to carry the mail, right, in a big bag. It was heavy. And I was so impressed with the mailman because he came no matter what the weather was, right? Whether it was hot, whether it was cold, whether it was raining, whether it was snow, whether it was ice, the mailman always delivered what? He delivered the mail. You could always count on the mailman. That's why I was struck by a story that I read about Frank, who was a mailman in Louisville, Kentucky. Frank had uh, decided one day, for some reason, which we don't know why, uh, he decided to quit his route early, and he went home. He didn't deliver all of his mail. That became his new pattern for delivering the mail. So over six years, he didn't deliver all the mail. People were complaining that they had not gotten their mail. And so an investigation found, you know what they found at Frank's house? 15 tons of undelivered mail. That's 30,000 pounds of undelivered mail. They found 1,200 bags in his attic alone. Now, when I read that, I was shocked because what's a mailman do? He delivers the mail, right? I couldn't get over that. And so the reason I wanted to share that story with you today is because my question for you is, what does a Christian do? What does it look like for the Christian to de deliver the mail? You know, if I'm totally honest with you, I think when I read about or hear about somebody who's a Christian who's not living faithfully, it doesn't shock me as much as it shocked me that Frank didn't deliver the mail. And that's unfortunate because something's happened in our Christian culture where it seems to be faithfulness and obedience is optional. In fact, it reminds me of a time when Jeremiah lived, the prophet, and I love what he said in Jeremiah 6.16. He says this, this is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old, godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, when Jeremiah was writing to the people of Judah, they were on the verge of being judged by God because of their lack of faithfulness to him. And it reminds me of what we're experiencing today in many places in our country. In fact, this reminds me of one of my favorite movies, which is called The Emperor's Club. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but most people have never seen it. But you know what I love about that movie is it's, it's about Mr. Hundert, 
Mr. Hundert is a history teacher at an all-boys school, an elite all-boys school. And his passion in life is to, to mold the character of these young boys as they're exposed to the truth of history. One scene in the movie is one of the boys is cutting across the grass on campus, and Mr. Hundert gets his attention and he says, hey, you need to walk on the sidewalk where the great men before you have walked. And that young boy said, I know, it's best for the grass. And Mr. Hundert wisely said, no, it's best for you. And so this morning, why you and I need to make sure today that we're walking on the godly path. Not one we've created like the people of Judah were trying to do, but we need to discover in God's Word His path, and we need to walk in it. One of the benefits of me and the new guy here is, unfortunately, I don't know you yet. And what does that mean? Is I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. You might be a faithful follower of Jesus who's been passionately following him for years, and I just want to commend you and say, way to go. Keep going. You may be struggling in life right now. You may be inconsistent in your faith. Or you may be sitting on the sidelines like Frank the mailman. Or maybe you've never been on the path before to begin with. My hope this morning is that as we interact over God's Word, understand more clearly His desire for us, the path that we should be on, is my hope is that we're all going to get back in the game. We're all going to get back on God's path, the one that He's designed for you and me. Why? Because it's best for us. That is where, like Jeremiah said, you will find rest for your souls when you're walking on the path that God has designed for us. You know, uh, we're in the midst of a three-week series, if you didn't know that. Uh, Mark did a great job kicking off this series last week. We're exploring our mission statement, which in many ways is a great summary of the godly path. Okay? Last week, he talked about loving God most. That means that we need to have God as the number one affection and allegiance of our soul. And we follow Him first. Today, we're going to be talking about loving others best. That's the second part of our mission statement. Now, we've broken that into two. We're going to be talking today about loving one another in the church. And Mark is going to wrap up the series next week, loving others outside of the church family. Now, I don't claim to be able to give you some brand new, brilliant insight that you've never heard of before, okay? Uh, not a, a brand new word, but I hope to give you fresh insight, as one, one scholar said, fresh insight into an old word with the hope that as we understand it, we're going to want to lock arms and live it out together here at Uniontown Bible Church. So as we begin, I'm going to have three main points. You're going to see them up on the screen. If you're a note taker, man, that's, a, that's what I did it for so that you can kind of follow me. And also, if you take notes, that's great. But how do we know what Jesus has uh, designed for us as a church body? It's pretty simple. If you look at John uh, 13, 35, it says this, by, all, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have, what, love for one another. Now, 
some of these passages you're going to have memorized, okay? And you can say them in your sleep. But I want to make some observations here that hopefully will help you. It's very important to observe in this verse what this word love is. The word love in Greek is agape. And we're going to explore what that means because this is a unique, special word that God has given new insight for us in how we should be living this out. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that there's many one another passages, right? Have you seen those before? A lot of one another passages. In fact, this week, I started counting them, and I I was up to 25, and I quit. (laughs) There's so many different one another passages. Encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, etc., all right? But Jesus says there's something special about this one another passage. Love, with agape love, one another in the church body. Why? Because it shows that we're one of his disciples. It proves that we're one of his followers. But it's a special kind of love that's not found in the world. And we're going to explain that here in a minute. If you look at 1 Peter 1.22, I think this passage helps us understand a little bit more clearly what kind of love this agape love is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. It says this, By obedience to the truth having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now if you notice, in that passage, if you can see it up there, the word love is mentioned twice, right? But in Greek, it's two different words. The first word is Philadelphia, and it's referring to brotherly love. It's a reciprocal love. I love you because I know that you're going to love me back. How many of y'all can do that? That's easy, isn't it? You don't have to be a Christian to do that. If I know that you're going to love me back, it's easy for me to love you because I like you and you like me. But notice what he says in verse 22. He goes on to say, but this is what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to love one another earnestly. And this is the word agape. I want you to agape one another earnestly. Now, I don't know when the last time you used the word earnestly is. (laughs) I haven't used it very often in my life. But an alternate translation for the word earnestly is eagerly. I want to love you with agape love eagerly. I bet you maybe you're like me. I'm sure I drove my parents crazy when I was a kid. Did you ever ask why? You know, when your parents ask you to do something, why? I don't see the need for that. Why? Why do I have to do that, right? Well, I want to share with you some things that I've learned over the years that have really helped me try to live out agape love one another in my life. There's three things that I want to talk about today. And the first is this. You are precious to the Father. Okay? That's my first point of this morning, in case you're curious. You are precious to the Father. Now, what do I mean by that? Ken Wiest, who's a a Greek scholar, he said it's very important for us to understand two clear things about the word agape. And the first one is I need to have an appreciation for how precious you are to someone. Okay? So why should I eagerly love you? Because I appreciate how precious you are to the Father. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But the second thing about agape love that makes it unique is it's sacrificial in nature. 
okay? So that means I sacrificially and eagerly seek your interests above my own regardless of how you respond to me. My choice to agape you has nothing to do with how you respond to me. It's not like Philadelphia that we talked about earlier. It's not reciprocal. I love you, period. And I'll sacrificially love you. Now, a verse that clearly shows these two aspects of the word agape is John 3.16. I know that's a verse you probably have memorized. I think that's the very first verse I ever memorized when I became a Christian in 1976. Okay? I shouldn't have told you that. All right, that was a while ago. <laughs> 1976, I became a Christian as a freshman in college. And it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see the two aspects of this word in this verse? God so agaped the world that he gave his Son. Sacrificially gave. It doesn't say I gave because I know that you're going to believe in him. It just says I gave. He gave his Son. Sacrificially without any expectation in return, with the hope, though, that we would respond to such an act. This verse, even though it's something that changed my life in, in 1976, it's a verse I still haven't gotten over. And I hope just because you've heard it 3,000 times that you can think about this verse for a minute with me. Notice what this verse does not say. If I were God, I would have written this verse this way. For God so loved the Son that he gave him the world. You see that? For God so loved the Son that he gave him the world. Isn't that what you would want to do with your son? I don't want to sacrifice my son. I want to give my son the world. But that's not what it says. That's not a mistranslation of the text. God so loves us that he gave his son so that he might die so that we might live. When it says that, that for God so loved the world, he's not talking about the physical uh, surroundings. He's talking about humanity. He's talking about you and me. For God so loved us. We're so precious to him. We have such infinite value to God the Father that he allowed his son to die for your sins. And be resurrected from the dead to give you life. Forgiveness and life are found in, in Jesus. So the first thing, if we're going to love one another the way that Jesus expects us to within the church body, I need to eagerly and sacrificially love you regardless of how you respond to me because I understand that you're precious to my Father. And since you're precious to my Father, you know what? You're precious to me. If you're, how many of you are all parents in here? Do you like people that like your kids? <laughs> we all do that, right? Well, guess what? I love you because Dad loves you. You understand? That is what motivates me to want to sacrificially and eagerly, not out of a burden, but out of a privilege, I get to love you. So the second thing, though, that helps me in my personal application of trying to love you in this manner is the realization that you're precious to me, too. You're precious to me because we're family. That's the second point. 
You're precious to me because we are family. My first motivation to love was because you're precious to the Father. But you know what? You're precious to me the more I think about it. The more about what, what Scripture teaches us. If you notice what it says in John 1.12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. All of us were created by God. But you don't become a part of God's family. You're not adopted into his family until you embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and God. Here, once we do that, what does it say we become? We become God's what? Children, right? So what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. We're siblings. One scholar said this, no image of the church occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family. References abound to believers as siblings, brothers and sisters, and to God as the father of his people. Now, I know one of the things when I was doing my studies uh, a few years ago, I was overwhelmed with the realization, I never knew this, and this might be new to you, that did you know in the culture in which Jesus lived, the terms brother and sister were the closest relational terms you could have? Because they tied the lineage through the blood of the Father. So because of the blood of the Father, the, the brother and sister were the closest relational term you could possibly have. So what does that say about you and me? There's no other term that they could have used it, and when they wrote Scripture to describe the type of relationship that you and I should be having. It's an intimate love relationship as brothers and sisters. It doesn't say we're friends. It says we're brothers. And we're sisters. That's extremely significant. Now, how do you live this out? How do I live out this realization that you're precious to the Father and that you're precious to me and I'm supposed to be loving you eagerly and sacrificially, regardless of how you respond to me? I think Acts 2.42 is helpful if you look at that passage. It says, all the believers devoted themselves. Notice they devoted themselves to four things. Devoted means they gave intense effort. They strained. Anybody strain lately? Any, you know, people that work out hard, maybe you're lifting some weights and you're straining. Guess what? They were straining at four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing of meals, and prayer. And the thing I want you to notice there, it says that all the believers were straining. Not some, all of them. And one of the things that they were straining towards was fellowship. This, I'm sure, is a Greek word you've heard before. It's koinonia. But the thing that's significant about the meaning of this word, it's describing an intimate association between people. An intimate association between, between people. And it's used primarily in two ways in the New Testament. Marriage. How many of y'all are married? Okay. You understand that we have an intimate relationship with our spouse? You get that, right? Well, guess what? The other way it's used is in the church. Did you know that we're supposed to have an intimate relationship with one another? It's a, it's a similar type of relationship, a depth of relationship that's similar to marriage. It's not the same, but it's similar. That's what we're supposed to be having as brothers and sisters because we're part of God's family. You know, this uh, God calls each of us, just as one, one little side note, God calls each of us individually to believe in him, right? 
But he wants us to do that as a team effort. He wants us to follow him as a team effort, I should say. I have to believe in him individually, but he wants us to follow together because we need each other. And so for what this means for us, it's hard in our culture today because our culture is so different than what it was when Jesus uh, was here. But what this is trying to tell us is we have to do like the, uh, the believers did in Acts 2.42. We have to strive, strain, work hard at having a relationship with one another. And so what that means, even though you're busy at home, busy with your family, we have to make one another a priority to encourage and serve and build each other up. I love what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this concept. The proof of Christianity is that it changes people. It gives them a new birth, and they belong to a new family. And this new family bond is deeper than any natural or social or national ties. They're drawn together. They cannot keep apart from one another. Did you catch that? I'm not sure if most of us have fully embraced that. You know, I've been serving in the church a long time, and most of us would agree that we're friends. But few of us live like we're family. And few of us really make it a priority to love one another truly as brothers and sisters. And so, you know, this really hit me. Like I said, I became a Christian in 1976 as a freshman in college. And I had a bond with those other believers, those other college students on campus that I had never experienced before. I came from a great family, I have great parents, great brother, but none of us were believers. We grew up, well I should say what I mean by that is we believed in God, but we didn't understand what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? And so when I became a Christian in college, I experienced a depth of relationship I had never experienced before. And that is what we are supposed to be taking advantage of as we encourage each other in following Jesus to become all that he wants us to be. In fact, if I were going to say there was one reason we came here, it's because of you. Donna and I really believe that you're our brothers and sisters we never knew we had. And you know what? We can't wait to get to know you and encourage you and lock arms with you and follow Jesus together because that's what life is about here on earth. Now, so, <clears throat> what have we seen so far? Two major points, right? I need to eagerly and sacrificially seek your interests above my own because you're precious to my Father, and because you're precious to me, because we're family. Now let me tell you one other thing that's helped me significantly in trying to live this out in my, my life. Now, I will tell you, and you know, feel free to ask Donna, she'll confirm this. <laughs> I don't have my act together, all right? Uh, I don't have all the answers, and if you want a proof of that, all you got to do is ask Donna. But but one of the things that I know is true, and I'm trying to live out in my life, is this third point. The realization that the Christian life is not about me. Did you know that? The Christian life is not about me. Life was about me until I became a Christian. Okay? All of us are born into this world very self-centered. 
I know how to live for myself. Anybody else know how to do that? <laughs> that comes naturally. But when I experienced a, a transformation by being born again and being entering into God's family, I found out that life is no longer about me. Don and I got married when we were about 30 years old, so it's a little bit later than, than I'm sure many of you here. And I was in seminary at the time. Donna was in full-time ministry. And we got married, and I thought, this is going to be a piece of cake. Now, it really was a piece of cake, but what I learned about myself, I didn't like. I realized how selfish I was. I didn't even know it. It was a, uh, what do you call it, a dark spot or a, a blank spot or whatever you call it. I didn't realize that about me. I was selfish. So, I, by God's grace, I started working on that. A couple years later, I feel I'm pre- feeling pretty good. You know, I feel like I got this down, and then guess what happened? Catherine was born. I was like, oh, crud. Now I got two people that I got to put before me in my, my life. And then I felt like I got that down, and guess what happened? 18 months later or 16 months later, Tyler was born. I'll never forget, I was working out at the gym, you know, the, the day before we were anticipating Tyler's arrival. And I was like, this could be the last time I come here in a long time. <laughs> And it was, all right, but uh, it's one of those things about life. You learn as you mature and grow, especially as a Christian, you learn that life is not about you anymore. It's about God is the number one allegiance of your heart and others where we love them. In fact, Jesus talks about this in Luke 9.23. This is another one of those passages that's really had an impact on my life. He says, And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Isn't he just saying exactly what we just said about this point? Life is not about me anymore. He expects me to step up, get on the godly path, and the godly path includes denying myself so that I can follow him his way. You know, when you look at this this uh, description of take up your cross daily, obviously everyone here feels like that's a figurative usage of that expectation. Because I don't see anybody's cross, I don't see any crosses parked in the parking lot, right? So what does Jesus mean here? Well, you didn't pick up your cross in that day to go on vacation, okay? You only picked up your cross for one reason, and that was to what? Die. You were carrying your cross to your execution. You know, Varus, as an example of this, Varus was a Roman general. And he was given the task of crushing another Jewish rebellion in Galilee. And so he marched his armies down there, and he did. He crushed that rebellion. And to make a point, he crucified 2,000 people and hung their bodies on every road in Galilee. So that no matter where you walked, you saw someone dying. When you saw a cross, you understood it meant death. So what is Jesus saying to us here? He's saying, if you want to be my follower, if you want to get on the godly path, guess what? You have to die to yourself. Follow me first, and then love others, is what we're talking about this morning. 
Klaus Hissler uh, has this to say about this passage. He says, taking up our cross daily means to form the habit of going through our day with a certain orientation and attitude, namely, with a passion to give up our right to make ourselves the center of that day. Rather, we live for God's kingdom, finding our place in His unfolding plan, playing our role well as we give our life away to others for Christ's sake. That is such a great summary of what I want my life to be, and I'm sure you want your life to be too. It's not about me anymore. I'm no longer the center of my world. God and others are. Life is not about me. You know, Paul mentions this too, and he says this was true of Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The attitude that willingly, sacrificially loves us at great personal cost. Because life no longer is about me. It's about you. And it's about God. You know, I had the privilege of knowing somebody named Scott. He was my best friend at a previous church, a partner in ministry for years. I love this guy. He was one of my best friends. <clears throat> and I got to, in fact, this, this phrase, life is not about me. I don't know where it comes from, but I got it from him. Okay? I don't know if he made it up or if he just passed it on to me. He also always used to tell me, life is not about me, Jeff. Life is not about me. It's about God. And it's about others. I got to see him live this out. He, was a, he modeled this for me. But you know what? That's easy to do when life is going good, isn't it? But I got to see him model it when life was not going good. I want to tell you a little bit about Scott. Scott was an All-State football player, All-State baseball player, and anybody that loves golf, man, could he swing. You know, he had one of those smooth swings that I would just die for. Okay, a great athlete, great guy. We were at a leadership retreat, and um, we're all having a good, a good time. And Scott stumbled very uncharacteristically and fell. They're like, what? What's up with that? What's up with Mr. Athlete? What happened to him? Didn't really think anything of it, but Scott started having other issues and problems and started getting some tests done. And he found out that he had ALS. ALS is a tough disease if you've never known anybody that's had it before. But <clears throat> from day one, Scott would say, Jeff, life's not about me. And he said that all the way to the very end. When he couldn't move anymore, he was in his wheelchair and can only communicate uh, verbally. He said, life is not about me. You know, all of us have to come to that point where we realize that life is no longer about our will. Our will has to bend and, and go and be in line with God's will. And so my question for you today, how are you doing with that? Where are you with that? The first two things that we've talked about are pretty easy. I can love you sacrificially and eagerly because you're precious to God, you're precious to me. But you know, it doesn't work 
if I'm still living for myself. I have to give up myself to love you the way that we're describing. So this morning, what uh, we're talking about today, if I could summarize, summarize this, is that, you know what, Donna and I are thrilled to be here. We're thrilled to be a part of this amazing staff team, this great elder team, because we want to love you eagerly and sacrificially because you're precious to the Father, you're precious to us, and we understand life's not about us anymore. It's about you. And so I have three things for you to think on this week. Just to, this isn't going to take long. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> the first thing I'd like you to, to think about is, are you relationally connected to others here at Uniontown? Are you relationally connected? Have you, are you experiencing what we're talking about in Acts 2.42, where you're straining to have a close relationship with your other brothers and sisters here? If not, you're missing out on God's design for you. Now, we can't, I can't possibly love every person here. The church is too big. You can't either. But we all can love a few. And that's where small groups come in. Okay? Small groups. If you're not in a small group, man, I want to encourage you to get in a small group so that you can live out these one another passages that we're talking about here. In fact, if you're not in a small group, I'm going to make a plug right now for uh, something we're starting called Discover Life, and it begins September 27th at 11 o'clock here on Sundays for four weeks, where we're going to learn how to, to live the way Jesus wants us to and get in a small group. So keep that in mind and sign up for that when you notice uh, that it's open for registration. The second practical application for what we're talking about here today, at least from my perspective, is are you coming to church to give or to get? Most of us, if we're totally honest, are, would probably say, I'm, I usually come to church primarily to get. Okay? I want to worship the Lord and get encouragement, and that's wonderful. But don't forget what we're talking about here is I need to be giving sacrificially and eagerly. I'm trying to train myself when I get up in the morning, I can't wait to be with you and love you and care for you as I become aware of, of needs. And then finally, the third thing is, how are you doing with this concept that life is not about you? You know, I, uh, I wrestled with God for years on this. I'll be honest with you. I became a Christian, like I said, in, as a freshman in college. But I wrestled with God for four years over that. And I thought I was going to be able to take him, but it didn't work out. <laughs> he took me down, so to speak. I gave up. I yielded. I said, okay, Lord, I give up. Your will be done in my life, not my will. And you know what I found? That is where you find rest for your souls. That is the best place, the most enjoyable place to be in life. And I want to encourage you to, to stop wrestling with God if you're still trying to do that. Get on his path. What we talked about this morning is expanding on our mission statement. I need to love God most. He needs to be the priority of my heart, the number one allegiance I have, and I need to love others in this church body. And next week, Mark will be talking about loving those outside the church. Now, let me ask you one final question. If we lived this way that I'm talking about today, do you think anybody in our community would notice? Do you think people would notice? They absolutely would notice. Let me tell you what happened in the early church. 
The early Christians intentionally organized their local congregations around the relational values of family. And these churches reproduced themselves and swept through the pagan empire of Rome like a holy fire. Even pagan detractors identified fraternal love as something especially Christian. See, Tertullian quotes the unbelievers exclaiming, how they love one another. My prayer for us as a church family is that our community will be amazed at how we love one another. As a result of that, I hope it will draw some to come to know Christ. Right? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this time that we could be together. What a joy to be here. What a privilege to serve here. Thank you for your sovereignty and your control in my life and my wife's life and, and just how you worked out everything for us to be here. We're just uh, we're honored and humbled that you would bring us here. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for how you designed life. Thank you that uh, you made it so simple. You just want us to follow you and you want us to love others. Uh, Lord, would you help us to do that? Help us to stop making ourselves the center of our worlds and so that we can see the needs of others. And may we really appreciate how precious what we each are to you so that we can love you appropriately. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.